collaboration bridges the gap and says, it's not an either or world, folks. You can have the best solution to a situation and the strongest relationship among the participants if you pursue a process or a collaborative model from the outset. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey guys, it's RJ Singer at Ultra Habits and we are bringing to you episode four, season two, and we are talking about conflict with our friend Patrick Aylward. Now, Patrick has spent much of his career as a trial attorney, and in the latter part of his career, he hung his hat in the Canadian government where he dealt with some of their biggest disputes. Now, some of us run towards conflict, some run away, but I think we can all agree that we don't handle it very well, partly because we haven't been taught. And as Patrick surmises, the frameworks that have been taught to us aren't working. So Patrick is all about early collaboration in flipping the frame on how we view conflict. He says that we can actually leverage conflict to better outcomes if we're much more collaborative about how we approach it. So whether it's at home with your kids, with your spouse, or in the business context, whether you're dealing with people, which we all have to, there's going to be conflict and he helps us with an easy framework to navigate it in a much more harmonious and collaborative manner. So before we leave you in the hands, Patrick, we actually want to quickly read a review from one of our previous guests in front of the show, Shay Eskew. Now, Shay is a five-continent Ironman best-selling author of What the Fire Ignited. If you haven't checked out the book, go get it. It's amazing. Shay writes, RJ is a calming spirit that unleashes the core of what drives you. Our time together felt like old friends reminiscing on the glory days and the moments of passion that make life so memorable. As an endurance athlete himself, RJ has a unique ability to relate to his guests and get them to share personal experiences. We thank you so much for that, Shay. Anyways, guys, you guys have a great and wonderful week. We're going to now leave you in the show. Peace out. Patrick, it's uh, it's great to have you on the Ultra Habits show. It is about seven in the morning here in Australia. What time is it over there in Nova Scotia? Uh, in Canada, it is uh, six o'clock in the evening on Sunday, the day mm. before. And it's a beautiful background there. I can see that you've you've you're uh, you're there docked. Uh, I guess your your boat's there, and I just. I had the pleasure of finding out that uh, you are a man of the ocean. You love to live uh, on your boat, right, during the, the, yeah. the warmer parts of the year. I spend my summers in Prince Edward Island here on uh, on my boat, and uh, and I love it. Yeah, and thank mm-hmm. you. I love to be. I'm uh, really thrilled to be on your show. Yeah, no, no, we're really really thrilled to have you. It's a pertinent topic. Uh, it's something that. After you and I had a conversation on the phone, I really thought about how relevant it is to to business, but not only business, everyday life, you know, understanding how to manage conflict, disagreements. It's super critical. I mean, you know, I just have to look at my own marriage and my relationship and it's so applicable there and kids and I know you have five kids. I'm sure you're doing a lot of conflict management at home, right? <laughs> yeah, we certainly did. 
<laughs> yeah, so look, I just um, – I know that you started off your career as a litigation lawyer and then you moved into the public sector into more of a traditional conflict management role. What is the widely accepted model with conflict management and – more so, why are you challenging that model? Hmm. Great questions. So the, the traditional model really is entirely reactive, meaning let's wait for a conflict. After there's a conflict, then when all else has failed, let's try a collaborative process like mediation. So they get into a dispute, they negotiate, they cajole and threaten and all of that. Then they litigate and three years down the road, they decide they're going to try a conflict resolution process and resolve it. And they do most of the time, RJ. So let's say 85 to 90% that works. The other 10%, the situation is just so damaged that it's not really repairable anymore. And so... I challenge I want to challenge that because there's a couple of things that that we've adopted in the field of conflict resolution as truisms that I don't think really are. One is conflict is inevitable. Mm, no, differences are inevitable. Conflict isn't. And the second, there's a positive side to conflict. Intellectually, we can get that. Unless it's your conflict then it looks entirely different. There's the people who lose hours of sleep, who lose health, who lose money. There's nothing positive in that conflict for them. And the other thing, that first group that I talked about, you know, when I was a litigation lawyer, get into a dispute, negotiate, threaten, persuade, push, pressure, litigate, three years down the road, try conflict resolution processes. At that three-year mark, what did they do differently that they couldn't have done three years earlier? The answer is nothing. So there is no positive side of conflict. It's supposed to be an all's well, it ends well argument that because they reached a better solution than either of them started with most of the time, therefore, the conflict brought that to them. No, the, the, the effort to be collaborative brought that to them. And so I don't want collaboration to be the tool of last resort. I want it to be the default and litigation to be the tool of last resort. That's why I really want to, I guess you would call me a, uh, a mediation heretic because uh, I, I challenge those two fundamental assumptions of of, of the whole field of conflict resolution. And when you were in litigation and just through your career in terms of witnessing conflict, how much of that ongoing conflict is really about ego, managing egos and managing that inflammation that comes with having such an adversarial engagement with someone like do you find that that is 
typically the major issue in terms of getting people to come to the table and collaborate? I don't know necessarily that it's ego and the inflammation of it. I'd say instead that since the days of Socrates, we've been trained that debate is the best form of problem solving. And in order to have a debate, you have to have two sides. You also have to have faith that one of those two sides is the optimal solution. And so we use that and a debate is entirely task focused. There is no relationship element to it. And when we engage in debate, we go all in. It's all for the win and somebody loses. And that is what really drives the levels of tension up. And, and I think it's more that than it is necessarily ego. It's that we use a, a debate style or what I've labeled in my book as an adjudicative model as our basic for decision-making, problem-solving, and also now everyday conversation. And that's why we hear so often in a conversation, it starts with every second exchange with the word but or however because it's all about rebutting what the other person said, not about listening to learn. In fact, listening to learn is entirely ineffective in a debate <laughs> if you want to win. Hmm. It's very interesting. So we had a guest on the show, Oscar Trimboli, who is a listening expert. He was a, a, a very senior marketer, and he is now a thought leader on listening, and he said that in our Western school of thought and education system, we're trained to be quick off the mark, to raise our hands quickly. And I take your point to Socrates um, and kind of the founding fathers of our style of uh, mode of dialogue and, uh, and, uh, and, and conversation. Do you think that's a Western quality? Have you witnessed more collaborative processes across, say, high-context cultures like Asian cultures? No, I don't. I, I, I think I'd have to say I don't have enough experience with cultures other than Western culture and people incorporated into it to really be able to provide a valuable response on that. No, I take that point. I, I do take that point. So in uh, in organizations as well as uh, litigation, I suppose conflict does come up. In your collaborative model, what is the framework and how did you actually come up with your model? What I didn't realize when I first started to take conflict resolution training and became a mediator. What I didn't realize was that only mediators thought that there was a positive side to conflict and it wasn't a big deal. I didn't catch the stigma attached to it. One day I was working with a group and who was two parts of a, of a project who were in, in kind of turf war. And I said to my boss, I said, you know what, I can bring them together and do a mini conflict resolution process. She said, oh, my God, you can't do that. The boss hates conflict, terrified of it. Oh, OK. What if we call it a mediation? No, that's no better. How about a negotiation? No. I said, well, what if we did a collaborative 
joint problem-solving conversation. She said, oh, he'll love that. And it was only at that time, RJ, that I realized that the whole field of conflict resolution is caught in the trap of talking to ourselves, our own language, that this positive side of conflict. The truth is, is that everybody hates conflict pretty much. And there's very few people who would say that they aren't interested in strengthening their capacity for collaboration. So that was one part of it. And then the second part was around conflict being inevitable. And like, no, what if we, and I looked at that example, what, what did they do differently three years later that they couldn't have done on day one? From the point they discovered that there were different perspectives, they could have begun to be collaborative. And instead, they chose to be judgmental and adversarial. And I guess it was, it was the combination of those things that led me to the idea that we can, we can teach people to be collaborative from the very start. That the surest way from the discovery of differences to optimal outcomes is the collaborative path and to show them a six-step way to get to get there very quickly, very easily. It's really interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking about my own career in strategic selling. Mm. And, you know, one of the, the features of a really powerful sales process is one where you're collaborating with the client versus selling because selling and, and being sold to can be a very uh, grading process. It could be a sort of conflict centric process because you have one view, you're trying to convince a prospective client that their view may not be optimal. And to try to do that head on can create conflict. But what I find is where you pull them into this kind of, collaborative fact-finding discovery engagement process, you two then come to the conclusions together. And it's a much more powerful process. I would agree with that. And, and just to follow up on that, that leads me really to the definition of conflict and the definition of, of collaboration. So if you look at conflict as problem plus tension around the resolution of it, then what's the opposite? The opposite is better solutions to situations and stronger relationships among participants. The first part of sales that you described is entirely task focused, isn't it? The buyer wants the best solution you want to get the sale done. That's entirely task focused. What you described in the second part is the dual pursuit simultaneously of the outcomes of the best solution to the situation and the strongest relationship among the buyer and the seller. And I think that that's, I'll jump into one other part here at this point. The other, another part of that is the idea that there's a lot of really good resources on sales, right? And on business, they get dismissed a lot by a huge section of the population because they're considered to be too task-focused, too hard-nosed business in their orientation. At the same time, 
we see a huge amount of resources around emotions, regulating and managing them, harvesting them, and, uh, and about relationships. And they are so relationship focused that the business community goes, no, I don't have time for that. Collaboration bridges the gap and says, it's not an either or world, folks. You can have the best solution to a situation and the strongest relationship among the participants if you pursue a process or a collaborative model from the outset. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. I just had a realization that what you're talking about is effectively what a trusted advisor approach really is when you are in the client engagement process. You are bridging that gap of uh, subject matter, expertise, tactical stuff, and you're overlaying it with a strong relational aspect because at the end of the day, human beings are social, right? And, you know, you may have a hard-nosed executive that is all about the facts, which I can be sometimes when I'm being sold to as well. But when that's overlaid with very careful and thoughtful relationship um, driven approach, it's quite powerful. So we'll move into your framework now. So what is the actual six step framework? Sure. So the first step in the collaborative model is to set the parameters for the conversation. And that is a matter of talking about how are we going to talk about what we're going to talk about. And in doing so, you create an atmosphere of curiosity, safety, and exploration. So that's the first part. When you have that atmosphere, then you can have an exchange of perspectives. And to exchange perspectives, it first starts with the idea that I have a perspective, not the absolute truth, as do you. And so then we exchange our perspectives in the sense of it doesn't matter who goes first. And the second person doesn't rebut the first person like in a debate. They simply say, this is how I see it and here's how I'm experiencing it. And in, when it goes like that, it's an entirely different conversation. That step enables people to get to the third one, which is to describe the issue neutrally and broadly so that it doesn't frame it as a dichotomy and it doesn't point towards one solution or the other, one perspective or the other being more valuable or more accurate. From there, the fourth step is to identify the key interests at play. So that really comes down to what do we want and what do we want to avoid? What happens when people are talking about what they want and what they want to avoid as arising from their perspectives and their experience of the situation is they start to see, and it comes back to our common humanity, I think, to a large point, it comes back to that idea that what we want, what we want to avoid will tend to be similar or compatible, not identical, compatible though. And when people see that what we each want is compatible, there's a growth in mutual understanding. We hear a lot, of day, a lot these days about the idea of trust, right? That there has to be trust. 
in the collaborative model, it isn't so much about trust as it is about mutual understanding. If we grow mutual understanding and we can find commonalities of what we want and what we want to avoid, then we can move to step five. And in step five, what we're going to do is we're going to generate options. And when we generate options, what we're really doing is saying, what, we, what could we do now or next or differently that would get us what we want, as described in step um, four, in, in order to solve the issue that we identified in step, uh, in step three. So that's the logic of the process. The key to step five is to not allow any justification, explanation, or questioning around the options, as it is for any, any brainstorming, right? And then it's only then at the end that we select solutions, step six. And in step six, what we're really doing is saying, of the options that we generated in step five, what combination gets us the most of what we want and helps us to avoid the most of what we wanted to avoid? So that's the logic of the process. One of the key differences there's two key differences, I suppose. The exchange of perspectives is quite different than the argument and counter-argument and rebuttal in a debate. That's one key, uh, key feature. The other part is look how late options are generated in a collaborative model versus in a debate. You can't have the debate until you've got two options so that you can have two sides of it. So that's how the framework that's how the frame how, framework works. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for your continued support of the Ultra Habits show. It's through your support that we've been able to scale this thing so quickly and so strong over the past year and we're truly grateful for your continued support. If you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co and subscribe. You'll get cool information, insights, and be up to date with everything we're doing. And also, if you haven't, please rate this podcast. The link is in the show notes. When you do this, you help us scale our message of ultra performance, ultimately helping us create more impact with our tribe. Anyways, we're going to leave you back in the hands of our wonderful guest. In a business where sometimes decisions can be made because of your power or your status or title and other people may kind of subjugate to your decisions because you are the CEO or you are the boss. However, they're not truly happy. In practicality, how would this be implemented where decisions need to be made? It cannot always be a democracy. And how do you determine when the model is relevant for a conflict or a situation? Is it is it great to do this weekly and you have different topics thrown into the blender? Is it also important to have an arbitrator? If you're doing it like so, what's I, I guess what's the danger of creating such a democratic process that no kind of that decisions get held up? And how would you see this being implemented within a firm to be used in a way that it's impactful um, and deals with the reality of a, 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 a you know of a business? 
There's a section in my book uh, about one size does not fit all. And it's about the idea that there are going to be cir circumstances, often in the private sector, where the business owner probably does have the most information of everyone in the room and probably is facing urgent pressures and needs to make a decision that changes the status quo. And in those situations, then yes, that executive making that decision is probably more appropriate than engaging in a collaborative conversation with with the rest of the employees about about that. And it's like everything else. There's no one there's no one magic wand that fits every situation. So that that would be the first part of it. The second part of it is that what I envisage isn't that it's something that happens every now and then. I talk in my book about three levels of integration of the model. And the first is at the individual level. The second is at the unit or team or group. And the third is at the institutional level. And I think it really does begin at that individual level. And that's a matter of integrating the collaborative model into everyday conversation. I talk in my book about three conversations that kill every workplace. And they happen almost daily. The bottle, the blurt, and the blab. So the bottle is the one where Paul's ticked off at Kate for something or other that, that she just has this annoying habit. And he bottles it up in his head and he says, well, you know, if I handled it differently, then, then it'll be better. Or maybe Kate's just like that. And he makes a ton of excuses and he never has the conversation with her. And the pressure just builds in the bottle. And then Kate does something someday, something very innocuous by any normal standard. And while Paul just blurts something out that's mean-spirited, condescending, or sarcastic, and that conversation never ends well. And if he doesn't do that, Paul goes down the hallway and talks to Sarah and says, Sarah, oh my God, I like Kate, but have you ever noticed that she's like this all of the time? And that's really the most insidious, the blab. He blabs to Sarah. And in doing so, he changes Sarah's perception of Kate. So the next time that Sarah works with Kate and she's anything like what Paul described, Sarah goes, hmm, wow, she is like that. The other thing about the, the blab that's so dangerous, not only is it a camp building conversation, it sends two messages for which Paul never uses words. The first is, if Kate was like this with me, watch her, she's going to be like that with you. And the second is, if you're my confidant and I'm ticked at Kate, you should be ticked at Kate too. And that's why that conversation is so destructive in the workplace. In my book, I talk about replacing those three conversations with collaborative conversations where effectively you incorporate the six steps of my model into a five-minute conversation. And 
So it's about how you do that, how you use a collaborative message to start the conversation and engage Kate about what's not working for you is one. How you de-escalate and reorient the conversation if a blab or a, sorry, if a blurt does happen. And the third is how to be an effective sounding board in that situation of the blab so that you kind of protect yourself against those two hidden messages and at the same time you help paul who has the problem to figure out how he is going to approach kate or whether he is actually okay with things hmm. so that's about that's how it really starts is at that level and i think that if, if those three conversations occur in the workplace instead then things change dramatically and then within teams and groups it enables that that model then becomes their ordinary pattern of the of a uh, workplace then it, when it comes to group unit team meetings they're used to using that type and they're used to being able to be led through a conversation or problem solving session that incorporates it i really like that because i think that organizations uh work you know we have our uh pride or you know this prestige there's a lot of emotions attached uh, when we bring ourselves into work and i think that work can bring out our lower base behaviors you know i had a conversation with bede uh, my mentor he's a psychologist and he talks about it all the time that you know human beings have a kind of fundamental self-dissatisfaction and many times it comes out in the form of persecution of others and the collaborative persecution of others, which kind of relieves this inner tension. And I won't go too much of in, into that, but I do agree with you that organizations have a tendency for individuals to do things like this, which could impact the culture, uh, the collective unit in a massively negative way. And what you're saying is by implementing the right frameworks within an organization that will help mitigate this. And I think what would happen to the individual is they would realize over time that that behavior is not okay because it's not part of the norms, mm. right? So they would leave that stuff. They would leave their own stuff at the door and realize that, okay, if I moan and bitch to Sally, she might call me on it that I'm talking about Jane. Yeah. And if you create a culture like that, then what you're talking about is your framework then becomes a cultural influence as well within an organization. And that brings us to the institutional level. So, yeah. So then even things like, I mean, you've seen business cases, you've probably written them in your career in sales and, and, and that kinds of stuff. Right. So in those kinds of things there, those, those documents are all prepared using the debate style model. They, they, identify the issue as we either do this or we do that. And even in identifying the issue, they slant it towards what they're going to end up with as the preferred outcome. They debate the analysis is really a list of pros and cons and a discussion of them that again is slanted towards where they're going to end up at. That type of, that type of reasoning is really decision taken analysis not a decision making analysis as i point out again in, in my book so 
If you get used to the conversations at the individual level, then you get used to the groups and, and units performing in a collaborative model, then the institution starts to develop a different way of, of even preparing um, white papers and that kinds of stuff where, they're, where they can really be prepared using the collaborative model of analysis instead. And then it does start to become embedded into the fabric of the organization. I don't know if you've if you've seen these studies. Have you seen the studies, RJ, where where across nine industrialized nations, the average employee wastes two point five hours per week unproductively as a result of conflict in the workplace. That's a huge factor. And that's an how, average how do you workplace. Think, how do you think that would unfold? What do you think those 2.4 hours would look like or 2.5 hours would look like in terms of wasted time? Like they're stressed out or they're just, what, what, is, what does that unproductivity look like? That's, that's being stressed out. It's tying up other uh, colleagues with the camp building blab conversations. It's uh, being off uh, sick it's fuming and being distracted at work and all of those kinds of all of those kinds of things. What a huge factor though, eh? 2.5 hours per employee per week in an average workplace. So take a toxic environment and I bet that goes awfully close to one out of five days. I would agree. I think that absenteeism on the back of conflict would be massive. And presenteeism. Mm. So how would you recommend that an individual and a firm habituate the framework into their own personal operating system as an individual and then into the group and then into the very fabric and culture of the organization? What we try to do here at Ultra Habits is really take it out of the individual's hands and ask the guests, well, how can we create a system that drives it versus depending on, you know, human willpower and engagement? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing to make this, so if you want to talk about ultra habits, the first one would to, would be to replace a judgmental spirit with a spirit of curiosity. We cannot be judgmental and curious at the same time. Even the criminally insane have a reason for what they do. So the first ultra habit is to go from, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know why they did that to, I wonder how they make sense of that. So that spirit of curiosity is number one. The second is, is that collaboration is a choice. We can compete, we can compromise, we can avoid, we can accommodate, or we can collaborate. And the fact is, we use all five of those styles from the, from the works of Thomas and Kilman. So we use all five styles. And if you ask people where they use them, they go, well, it depends. And if it depends, that means that we choose. So we can choose to be collaborative. So ultra habits, choose to be curious, choose to be collaborative. How you engage in it. I've outlined in my book, um, in part, how to use a collaborative message or what I call a C message. 
And in, in the follow-up to my book, I'm working now on the collaborator's toolbox. So if you take it as an analogy to a car, you know, you buy the Chilton manual for the car, and then you need tools to fix the car. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do really is to equip people with both the manual, the theory, and the practice of it. So it's a matter of, of, of starting out with being curious, choosing to be collaborative, understanding what collaboration is, and then practicing in that way. The other thing that would make a huge difference all by itself if, is if the only thing people did differently was to set the parameters for the conversation that they were going to have, they would have a much higher chance of collaborative outcomes resulting from those conversations. So three things, be, collab- be, uh, be curious, be collaborative, set the parameters for each conversation to create that environment of curiosity, safety, and exploration. And you would say this is applicable for home life as well, right? I mean, so when you're at home and you had you have any disagreements, do, do they're like, oh, dad's setting the framework on us? Or like, <laughs> like what, what's the go there? Like, have you found this form of uh, style is quite relevant at home as well? When, when we did workshops, we would... We would often get the feedback from people because what we used to do is evaluate the their use and the impact of their use of the skills 30 days down the road. Not not the, you know, did you like the facilitator? Was the room warm and were the materials friendly? We asked, did you use it? And if you did, what was the impact, positive, negative or neutral? And often what we got as feedback was not only was it positive that people used it more outside of their work than they actually used it at work. So yeah, it's applicable. And really it is. When when Fisher and Yuri wrote Getting to Yes, they talked about a model for resolving, uh, resolving issues or negotiating that was applicable whether there was neighbors, businesses and internationally, which of course treaties, which was their their background. And it was scalable. And this model is is equally scalable and it's intended for use in your home, your community, and your workplace. What what would be your measure or how would you define success with your model versus the traditional model? In terms of you know a successful outcome, a success a successful outcome of of my model is that the participants leave with the best solution that they are capable of generating, and in, in a stronger relationship between them than they had at the start. Mm-hmm. That's really the measure of success. Whereas I would imagine within a resolution model previous, the conflict resolution model of, of old, there is more of a win-loss. Someone would feel that they're going away with more than the other party. Is that right? Um, certainly the adjudicative model, um, the litigation model is certainly all win-lose. 
the traditional conflict resolution model, I think would have a similar, it, because it is collaborative in nature, it would have the similar desired outcomes to, to, my, uh, to my approach. The, the difference really is that that model says, well, let's everybody just go along our merry way and debate things until we get tensions high enough that all else has failed, and then we'll try conflict resolution. Whereas mine says, let's prevent conflict before it ever begins by changing the conversation from the outset, from the discovery of differences. So your model is quite relevant for relationships that need to continue and where we need to live with each other day after day after day after day, correct? That is, that is correct. There are, if there's no relationship element to it at all, if it's absolutely a one-off, then, then my model is of less use. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, look, I think what we'll do there is we will wrap it up, Patrick. I really, really want to thank you for the time that you've given us today on the show. A lot of what you've talked about, I'll be implementing not only my day-to-day life at home, but obviously within my career uh, is someone that's dealing with uh, parties that I need to collaborate with. And it's really important to bring them into the process versus barking at them. So I really appreciate you being on the show. Where can we find you? Where can we find your material and your book? Sure. Uh, So the easy, thank you very much. First of all, let me say thank you very much for the opportunity to be a guest on your show. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I enjoyed our initial conversation and enjoyed this one even more so because we had a lot more time to go in depth. In terms of the easy spot to find me, uh, my website, www.collaborativepath.ca. My, apart from my book, just the, my YouTube channel, uh, search for Patrick Aylward Collaborative Paths, plural. And there's a lot of clips on there illustrating my model. So that would be a really good resource for people if they never bought my book. <laughs> Not much of a salesman, am I? <laughs> for, me, for me, it's for me, it's really about impa- having an impact in this world. It really isn't about income. And the and the the last part, if uh, if you're looking for my book, there's lots of links uh, to it on my website, and it's available at Amazon and uh, Kobo and the usual the usual uh, resources for books. All right, Patrick. Well, look, you enjoy your evening. I will leave you to it again. Thank you for joining us on the show. My pleasure, RJ. Have a great, uh, have a great day in Australia.